A very good morning to my brethren and friends. It's so good to see all of you here this morning. It's always wonderful to have see a full house on Sunday and especially to see so many visiting brethren and also the friends that have joined us here in person as well as those who are joining us online. And this is a very beautiful morning and that we are glad for this opportunity to come together to glorify and to praise God and to worship Him together. Uh, we are currently on a series of lessons on faith under fire, uh, which I think is a very apt and relevant series given the situation that we are in. Uh, we are faced with the ever-present ever, uh, problem of climate change. Uh, we, have, we are still in the midst of a pandemic, and uh, recently there has been a greater economic turmoil caused by the war in Ukraine. So I think a lot of people are discouraged, they are disheartened, and so we need to turn to God's word to give us strength and comfort during these trying times. And over the past few weeks, we have looked at various aspects of going undergoing trials. Uh, in the earlier lesson, the first lesson that we go through, we talk about exaltation under fire. How we can have victorious joy under fire. We spoke about the problem of suffering, which is not unique to us. We see that even in the first century church, they have it just as bad, if not worse than us. We spoke about the purpose of suffering. How suffering is there to test the genuineness of our faith, to refine our character, and also to strengthen our faith. And we talk about the perspective, how we can go through suffering by having the hope of heaven, the glory of heaven, always inside. And Uncle Tianxing shared with us a lesson uh, also about conduct, charity and citizenship, even when we face trials. He spoke about the, how we can carry out our duties and face trials briefly. And in my last lesson, I spoke about the perfect example while facing the fire. We spoke about why do we suffer? because Christians are called to it. We spoke about how do we suffer, that is, we follow the example of Christ. And we spoke about when do we face the fire, when do Christians have to suffer, we won't be long after our conversion. And even today, we see that we may not face the same kind of persecution like those faced by the first century Christians. Currently, we don't really face physical persecution, we don't face financial persecution that the first century Christians have to go through. But that's not to say that Christians today don't have suffering. We actually face more subtle kind of sufferings. For example, mental and emotional persecution by a world which seems us to be strange. Sorry, let me just change. Okay, okay. As 1 Peter 4 verse 4 says, Wherein they, that is the world, the Gentiles, they think it strange that we run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of us. You know, to the world, uh, Christians are a strange bunch of people because Christians don't behave as them. In fact, we have a different moral standards. We behave contrary to human nature. Human nature is that you give me a knife, I give you a knife. A tooth for a tooth. If you do good to me, I do good to you. You do evil to me, I do evil to you. So when Christians are called to behave in a different manner, people think it very strange to them. And so Peter gives encouragement to the first century Christians how to face a world that regards Christians as strange creatures. And that is why in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to verse 17, he speaks of how to handle restrictive governments, oppressive governments. In society, we face different kinds of government. Okay? Uh, even today, in some countries, we see that there are governments that are not favorable to Christianity. Well, you may say that the world is like that. But yet, when we go to work, we also have to face harsh employees, okay? Harsh employers, bosses who are unkind to us, bosses that are rude to us. And that's why Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2, 
verse 18 to verse 25. How about in the home? Maybe we think that in the home, that's our sanctuary, that's our refuge. But for some, they have to face unbelieving spouses. Spouses, they may not have the same thinking, they may not have the same goals. And so Peter writes to this group of people in 1 Peter 3, verse 1 to verse 7. So the book of 1 Peter is a very intense, immensely practical book, telling us how to deal with sufferings in all situations in life. But while the world thinks us strange, you know, sometimes Christians also think it's strange that why do we have to suffer? In fact, 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the prior trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. You see, not just that the world thinks us as strange, sometimes Christians we also think it's strange. Yeah? I'm God's children. Eh? How can God allow me to suffer? How can God put me through these times of trial that I have to face each time uh, in my life? But the problem thing is that we are different from the world, so we should not expect anything different. If our Lord Jesus was persecuted, we as his servants can't expect anything less. As Jesus says in John 15 verse 20, that the servant is not greater than the Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so in my previous sermon, I spoke, my, he focused on following Christ's example of what not to do. We spoke about how we should not lie and sin to get out of trouble. We spoke of how we should not revolt when we are being revolt. And we spoke of how not to threaten when we are suffering. And for my sermon today, I'll be talking more of what we ought to do. So previously I spoke about what not to do. Today we'll be focused on what to do. What we should do to defend ourselves from the fire, from the, the fiery trials that we are beset with. So I'd like to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to verse 17 for today's lesson. As we look at five things that a Christian should do in order to defend ourselves from the fiery trials that we are beset with. The first thing that Christians should do is to seek what is good. Seek the things that are good. The world today, they may do good, but only when it's in their interest to do so. Then they will do the good thing. And why they do that? Firstly, it's for glory for men. You know, today there are people who do good things, huh? but when they do good things, huh, it must always be on the social media. Okay? Hashtag this, hashtag that, hashtag good deed, hashtag good vibes, hashtag good words, good thoughts. Okay? They put it up there to let people know that, oh, I do this thing. Uh, I'm a good person at heart. But Jesus tells us that when you do alms, do not sound the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Jesus says, don't do good, don't need to tell people, because God knows God will reward. And some also do good so that others can repay them, to do good towards them so that there's something that they gain in return. Our world is a very practical world, uh, I tell you that. You see, when you want people to do good, sometimes you must incentivize them. You must encourage them. That's why sometimes when charity or charitable organizations, societies, they want to raise funds, what they do? They have a lucky draw. Uh. Uh, you donate a certain amount, you can send a chance to win a car. Okay. And you know, Singaporeans, we like to have free things. Uh. Uh, sometimes you see people queuing up to give away money at the Toto outlets. Uh. So when there's something in return, they will do it. Uh, if you give me a, 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 a reward, okay, I will think about doing good. And the government, in order to encourage people to do charity, they will say, we'll give you tax deduction. Uh. You do good, you get 250% tax deduction. Uh, then people think, okay, like, I do good, I still get something in return. Uh, not so bad. Okay. So the world, they are like that. They like to say, I do good so that people can return me. 
I treat a good friend so that my good friend will treat me back. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14 verse 12, that when you make a dinner or a supper, do not call your friends, your brethren, your kinsmen, your rich neighbours, lest they beat you again and the recompense be made unto you. The world do good because I get something in return. But when the Bible tells us to do good, it's not only when it's in our interest to do so. The Bible tells us to be followers of that which is good all the time. Not sometime, not most of the time, but all the time. Always do what is good. And Peter says, And who is he that will harm you if you be follower of that which is good? The word follower is an interesting word. Huh? It's from the Greek word mimites, where we get the word mimic, huh? which means to be an imitator. And what are we to imitate? What are we to follow? Well, John tells us in 3 John verse 11, to follow that which is, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. So Christians, we need to do good. We need to seek what is good, even if it is to our detriment. And doing good defends us from the fire. It protects us from harm. It protects us from suffering. How is that so? As you see in the verse earlier, in 1 Peter 3 verse 13, notice what Peter says, Who is he that will harm you if you are followers of that which is good? Logic tells us that if we do good to others, they are less inclined to harm us. They may not like us, they may not get along well with us, but you have a colleague that doesn't get along with you. Every morning you buy him breakfast, uh, I tell you your life will be easier. Uh. Even if you want to tekan you, make your life difficult. Uh, but you say that yeah, this guy uh, always treats me so well. I may not like him, I may not like his style of doing things, I may not like the way he talks to me. But I won't think about harming him. I may not do good to him, but I will be less likely to harm him. So most of the time, you do good to others, naturally, uh, human reaction is that most people will be not do harm to us. Although a few might, uh, okay, some people, no matter what good you do to them, they will still return evil. But these are in the minority. So Peter tells us, do good. If you do the right thing, less likely you will get into trouble. And when we do the right thing, our enemies, even if they harm us, notice I talk about the few people that might do evil for good, uh, they will be ashamed also. Uh, when they do evil to us, people say, hey, why are you so nasty? Your friend has been so good to you. Your colleague has been so good to you. They always treat you quite well. Other people can see it. And when they do evil to us, they will feel ashamed as well. So Peter says, to have a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they will be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So when we do what is good and seek what is good, it protects us. It prevents us from unnecessary suffering. And this brings to me a person who always do good to his enemy. And I think you all are very familiar with him. That would be King David. Remember how Saul tried to kill him time and again, even though he was his son-in-law, even though he had rescued him from Goliath, the Philistines, but King Saul wanted his head so badly because of the things that he hear from his own people who accused David of trying to usurp his throne. But time and again, David showed mercy to him. Two times in the cave, David saw him, but David prevented his people from killing him. Eventually, look at what was King Saul's reaction to him. Huh? King Saul became so ashamed of himself that he eventually relented from pursuing Saul, pursuing David after that. Look with me to 1 Samuel 24, verse 16 to verse 19. And let's look at what King Saul has to say. 1 Samuel 24, verse 16 to 19. In the words of Saul, okay, notice what he says. 
It came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is it your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He was so ashamed that time and again David do good to him, return good for evil. He was so ashamed that he wept and he acknowledged about David's goodness. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me good, whereas I rewarded you evil. And you have shown me this day how that you have dealt with well with me, for as much as the Lord had delivered you into delivered me into your hand, and you killed me not. So he realized that David had been very good to him. Eventually, he was so ashamed that he stopped doing harm. And that's what we are saying. When you do good to others, they'll be less likely to do harm to you. And they will be ashamed even when they do evil towards us. And so the first thing that Christians should do to prevent ourselves from unnecessary suffering is to do good. Always do good. Even if in the short term it costs us, it's not to our advantage, but still do good. Secondly, the second thing that Christians should do when we are facing the fiery trials is to be prepared to suffer for righteousness sake. Again, when we talk about the world, the world will suffer, but only if it's on their own, own wrongdoing. Uh. I do something wrong, then they say, okay, it is just, it is righteous for me to suffer. So when they do something wrong, for example, they, for some misconduct, they might be willing to suffer. Uh. If they are being punished, if they are being scolded, then they say, so be it, because I've done something wrong. You know, sometimes in the house, uh, I have this habit now uh, of sometimes when I wash my hands, I uh, like to spray my hair on the floor. Uh. So always my wife will scold me and say, why I cannot wipe my hands dry? For that, I accept the scolding uh, because I'm actually at fault. But if I'm being scolded and it's not something I will do, uh, probably I'll be less patient to do that. Uh. I'll probably answer back and even argue back. So the world is like that. They do wrong, they suffer. They say, okay, so be it. I'm at wrong, I'm willing to take the blame like a man. And First Peter 2 verse 20, he says, For what glory is it if you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. The Bible says there's no credit, uh, there's no glory in suffering from wrongdoing. Uh. You cannot tell God, God, I suffer for you when I do wrong. Because we are suffering for our own injustice, our own evil, our own wrongdoing. No glory, no pride in doing that. Because the world also willingly suffers for that. And sometimes, people suffer because of their sin. You do a crime, you have to prepare for the consequences. Today, let's say we commit offences, traffic offences. You speed, ah, okay, you get you get a summon ticket. Most people will say that, okay, la, I, I, I suffer, I have to pay the fine because I'm the one who speed. But if they have doubt, then probably they will argue their way out of it. So the world, they are willing to suffer when they do wrong. And 1 Peter 4 verse 15 tells us, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a busybody in other men's matters. The Bible tells us, don't suffer for sin. Because there's no credit. On the day of judgment, God will say that, oh, well done, uh, you suffer for wrongdoing. Because there's no, nothing to be proud of when we do wrong, and then we suffer for it. But, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, then there will be a reward. And so Peter encourages us to suffer for righteousness' sake happily. Be joyous when we go through suffering. And Peter says, but, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Again, I want to look at one word in this phrase, the word happy. It's from the Greek word makarios, which means to be blessed, to be happy. And this is the same word that we find in the Beatitudes, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 12. Particularly in verse 10, notice what Jesus says, 
Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the next verse, Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, okay? for great is your reward in heaven. When we are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, Jesus promises us that there will be a reward. And so he wants us to suffer, not for wrongdoing, but for righteousness. When we do the right thing and people are against us, they persecute us, they punish us. It can be very hard to take sometimes uh, because we say that I'm doing the right thing. Why should I suffer wrong for it? But Jesus tells us that there is a reward. And we are blessed if we are willing to do so. And so we see that suffering for righteousness' sake is important as a Christian because it defends us from the fire. You might ask me, wait a minute, uh, what do you mean? What do I mean by you suffer so that you can prevent yourself from suffering? What, what, what does it mean? How am I making sense? Well, what I mean is that when we suffer physically, we save ourselves from eternal spiritual suffering. We are protecting ourselves because we are now facing a temporary suffering so that we can protect ourselves from eternal suffering. And so when we suffer for righteousness sake, the Bible tells us that it delivers us from the fiery damnation of hell. As Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, our Lord tells us, to fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the word destroy doesn't mean it's utter elimination. Uh. It just means that we will suffer for all eternity. The world can only harm our physical flesh, but the world cannot take away our soul. But God is the one who can cause us physical suffering as well as eternal spiritual suffering. So for us as Christians, we must be prepared to suffer for righteousness, even if it is unjust, even if it is unfair. Because when we do the right thing and we suffer, ultimately God will reward us. In fact, it may be actually be God's will for training us, to train us in our character, to strengthen us in our faith. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 verse 17. For it is, for it is better if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Of course, we know that it is better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong. But notice in this verse, it says, if the will of God be so. So there are some times that we suffer, not because God wants us to, but sometimes God allows us to suffer in order to strengthen us. We will remember about Job, how God allowed him to suffer so as to strengthen him. And he refined his faith, he became stronger in his conviction towards God after his suffering. So God sometimes allows us, even as his children, to undergo suffering. I'm sure those of you who are parents in the midst, you will understand that. Huh? Sometimes you allow your children to go through the school of hard knocks, to experience pain, to experience discomfort, so that they will learn. They will toughen up to become like men, and they will be able to bear stronger uh, obstacles further down the road. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 the Hebrew writer acknowledges that no chastening for the present seemed to be joyous but grievous. Any kind of suffering is undesirable. People don't like pain. People don't like to suffer. It's natural because we don't want to be in discomfort. But notice the Hebrew writer says, it is not joyous, it's grievous. But nevertheless, afterward, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. He says that when we go through suffering, it brings forth, it develops the fruit of righteousness. When we go through suffering and yet we stay faithful, we do the right thing, 
He trains us to be righteous, to put our faith and trust in God. And we see our Lord Jesus was someone who went through suffering willingly. In fact, look at what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 9. Notice what did God teach Jesus when he go through suffering? What did Jesus learn? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 9. He says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Notice what did suffering do for Jesus? He learned obedience. He learned the cause of following God, of doing God's will. There is a painful price to bear. But yet he went through it. And through it all, he learned obedience. So we need to be our Lord when we go through suffering. He will learn how we can be faithful, how we always trust in God, and how God will deliver us. Eventually, the suffering that we go through in this life purifies our souls and prepares us for heaven so that we will not have to suffer eternal damnation in hellfire. So that's the second thing that we need to do when we go through suffering. That is, to be prepared to suffer for righteousness sake. The third thing that we need to do as we go through suffering is to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. When we talk about sanctify God, it means to put God first, to set apart. The word sanctify means set apart. To set apart and put God first in our hearts. In the world today, again, some will follow Christ, but only at their own convenience. They will follow Christ when it doesn't require sacrifice. If their sacrifice required, a lot of people will say, I give up doing the will of God. You know, when we are choosing a place for worship, uh, uh, when we move out from Nimapin and set up inside Church of Christ, uh, we are looking for a church building. And one of the few criteria we look for is that a place that is convenient, that is accessible, that is safe, and also a place that is comfortable. There's nothing wrong with all of this, because we want to have a best experience when we come to worship God, so that we can focus. We want our guests to be able to come and to find us and to worship with us. Because you know, people in the world, they, will, they do not have the conviction, they do not have the faith. If you ask them to travel a long distance to come, they might say, ah, forget it, I'm not going to come. I'm going to go to the nearest uh, denomination near my house. So if there's no, nothing wrong in that. We want to have the best for our guests and the best when we come to serve God. But consider, if the next time we move, our lease expires in July. Ah, so if we need to move, what if we find a place that is not very convenient? Ah, what we have to talk about traveling all the way to Tuas to Jurong? What if we say that we are in a place where it's not accessible? Uh, you take a train, you have to change two buses, and then you have to walk 20 minutes in. What if we go to a place that is not air-conditioned? We have to be able to bear the heat and the sweat. In that case, what will we do then? Will we still say that, Sunday I need to come to worship? It's further away, it's after a long walk, so I better leave the house earlier. Maybe half an hour, one hour earlier to come to church for worship. Or do we say that, I think it's more convenient to just worship online. After all, we have a live stream during the COVID period. Let me just join the live stream and make it more convenient for myself. Well, you know, following Christ actually requires much sacrifice. And that is what Jesus asked of us, that we have to be prepared to sacrifice in order to follow Him. In fact, when we look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 19 to verse 22, there were a few of His disciples wanting to follow Him. And one of them was a scribe. It's a very rare occasion uh, because we know that the scribes were always at loggerheads with Jesus. These were the Pharisees who were always against him and fighting for with him. So it was very rare that this certain scribe came to Jesus and says, Master, I will follow you, readers, wherever 
you go over. So this was a man who wanted to follow Jesus. And very rare to find such a man. But Jesus didn't say that, oh, very good, come and follow me. I need more disciples like you. Jesus helped him to understand the cause of discipleship. What it means to follow Jesus, it means to be able to sacrifice. Probably this guy was thinking that Jesus is going to set up a kingdom. I'm going to be one of his pioneer followers and enjoy the riches and the glory that will come when his kingdom comes. Of course, we know that when Jesus talked about the kingdom, it is the church. But the Jews had the mentality of a physical kingdom. They wanted positions of honour. And so Jesus had to correct his thinking to let him know that following Christ is not just about honour, but it requires sacrifice. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus told him that you better be prepared for suffering when you follow me. In fact, the apostles, when they follow Jesus, the Bible says they forsook all and to follow him. So are we prepared to pay the price to follow our Lord Jesus? And again, some will follow Christ when it does not stand in the way of worldly pursuits. They want Christ, but they also want the world. Don't tell me to join church activities or attend Bible classes if you're going to cost me a chance at promotion in my career. Don't ask me to attend Bible classes or church activities when I can enjoy myself during those periods of time. Between a game of football and between uh, coming to church, if there's a late match on, on uh, Saturday night, Man U versus Liverpool, maybe don't ask me to come. Uh, I want to watch the match and enjoy the match. I want to go and juggle with my friends for fishing. Don't ask me to come to church. There are people who will follow Jesus only when it doesn't cost them, when it doesn't st stand in their way of following the world. And that is what Jesus told another of the disciples. When the disciples said to him, Lord, suffer me first and bury my father. You might think Jesus' response is very heartless. Huh? Because in the next verse, Jesus says, follow me, let the dead bury the dead. It may seem a very heartless response. But consider that if the person is already dead, anything that we do for them, it doesn't really affect them anymore. Their souls is already at the final destination. There's nothing we can do that can help them to go from hell to heaven or to, pre or help them, or to make them go from heaven to hell. There's nothing that we can do for them. It's already a dead person. And so Jesus says, let the physically dead, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let those of the people who are following the world to bury the person. But more importantly, you should come and follow me. Because Jesus' ministry on earth is only for a short three and a half years. Jesus doesn't want the person to waste the, waste the time. Or it could be that the person's father has not even passed away. He's very sick. Okay? Uh, maybe long-term terminal illness. And so Jesus will be telling him, don't waste your time being there. Because if you're going to wait very soon, maybe three and a half years, Jesus will pass away before the father even passed away. And he will miss this opportunity to follow Jesus. So Jesus is saying that we must set our priorities right. We see that spiritual pursuit is more important than physical pursuits. So that is the cause of following Jesus, of sanctifying God in our hearts. And so the Bible tells us that we don't just follow Jesus when it's convenient. We don't follow Jesus only when it doesn't cause us a thing, it doesn't require sacrifice, or it doesn't stand in the way of our worldly pursuits. But the Bible tells us that we are to sanctify God in our hearts. Always remember God. Always put Him first in our life. When we make decisions, it must always be with Him at the utmost of our priority. And so in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, the Bible says to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And the word sanctify, as I mentioned earlier, okay, it comes from the Greek word agiazo, which means to set apart. It also means to be venerable and to hallow, to honour, to praise, to reverence God. 
And you know this is the same word that we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where he says, when Jesus talked about the prayer, he teaches his disciples to pray. He says, Our Father which are in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is for the same Greek word as sanctify. But you know, sometimes we sanctify God in our words. Huh? Okay, we praise God, we honor God. Uh, God, you are good, you are great, uh, your will be done. But we don't really honor Him in our lives. Huh? That's why Peter tells us that we don't just sanctify God in our words, but we have to sanctify Him in our hearts, our actions, our thoughts, in everything. God ought to be first place in our hearts. And again, when we sanctify God in our hearts, He defends us from fire. He defends us from the fiery trials that will be undergoing. How so, you may ask? How does me putting God first in my heart? Does it mean that I will have less suffering at work? Does it mean that I have less suffering in my life? May not necessarily be so. But it gives us strength. When we have God in our hearts, He allows us to have the strength to go through the suffering. You know, it's easier for us to go through suffering when we know the purpose and why we are going through the suffering. When we have God in our hearts, it prevents us from being discouraged. We won't be so discouraged, we won't be giving up because we know why we suffer and we know that there's a purpose to the suffering. And that's why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 to verse 3, notice the Hebrew writer tells us to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And verse 3 says, Consider him. Consider Jesus that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. The Bible tells us to consider Jesus, because Jesus went through suffering even though he had not done wrong. And when we can look at our Master and what he has gone through, and it's even worse than us, then we think that we as his servants, or shouldn't we be doing even more for him? Shouldn't we be willing to suffer for his sake? And so when we have God in our hearts, it keeps our focus. And so, we will not be discouraged. In fact, what we'll do is that we'll respond to suffering like our Lord. As I mentioned in our earlier lesson, what did Jesus do when he went through suffering? We see that he did not revolt, he did not threaten, and he did not, uh, and he did not give up his faith, but he entrusted himself to God. He did not lie or sin to get out of his trouble, but he trusted God in all things that he did. And so, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, for even hereunto were recalled, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. And we think about someone who sanctified God in us, that enabled him to go through suffering. We think of the disciple, Stephen. Stephen, remember the guy that was stoned for his faith? That was stoned to death, a very painful death, as he suffered for Christ. But notice what the Stephen says, even when he was being suffered, when he was being tortured for doing the right thing. Notice he didn't, re he didn't retaliate, he didn't revile them. But let's look at his words in Acts chapter 7, verse 59 to verse 60. Acts chapter 7, verse 59 to 60. And the people cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Notice when he was being suffered, when he was suffering, Stephen was not discouraged. He was looking unto Jesus. In fact, he cried out to ask Jesus to receive his spirit. And notice how did he respond. The words that he spake, 
Isn't it? Does it remind us of what Jesus said on the cross? When he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Stephen says similar words. He says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. This was a man who always got his heart, who always served God, and that was his priority in life. Because of that, he was not discouraged, but he responded just like our Lord, and he was received to heavenly glory. And so this was what Stephen did when he went through suffering. And so as we go through suffering in our life, remember to honour God, to set God apart in our hearts, to put Him first in all the decisions that we make in life. The fourth thing that we need to do is to strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith. It means that we need to prepare ourselves before times of trouble comes. You know, when we are fighting a war, when do you start training? You don't start training only when you are fighting the war. Today we talk about Ukraine fighting with Russia. I'm sure the Ukrainian soldiers didn't start training only when Russia attacked. They have been prepared all along. We see that they were ready in order to fight the enemy. Similarly, as Christians, you can't just build your faith when trouble comes. Because if you only start building your faith when trouble comes, the problem is our faith will go astray. We will lose to Satan. Satan will win us because he's someone who is seasoned, who has been preparing himself all along. We need to strengthen our faith all this while in good times and in bad, so that we can handle problems. But the problem is that, the natural reaction is that some will turn to God only in times of difficulty. When they have problems, then they say, oh, let me pray to God. But when things are good, they never ever think about God. It's just like a child, uh, uh, an adult child, who only visits his parents only when they need money. Uh. When they say, ah, I got run out of money, who to go? Oh, my dad is rich, let me go to my dad. But when times are good, they never think about going to visit the dad. But the dad sees them, you know, okay, this guy, my child, needs money. That's why he's come to visit me. But you know, sometimes we treat God that way. We don't turn to Him when times are good. We never remember Him. Only when we have problems, then we say, I remember my father now. Let me go to my father and ask the father for help. And so some people turn to God in times of difficulty as a means of convenience. They substitute prayers for obedience and diligence. They never think about doing God's will or serving God, but only when trouble comes, then they will turn to God. But look at what John tells us. In 1 John 3 verse 22, he says, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. When we ask God for things, we receive of God. But there is a condition. He says, why will God give to us? Because, the reason, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. The only reason why God will listen to us and answer our prayers is because we do His will. And we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. We cannot be lazy Christians, or we cannot be Christians who do not ask God, who do not build a relationship with Him, but only when trouble comes, then we turn to God. That kind of prayer will not be, will not be answered by God. He will not desire that kind of prayers. But you know, some people, they will turn to God only when they are trouble, first thing they go. But there are also people who only turn to God as a last resort. They look about how I can solve my problems every single way. I cannot solve the issue, then I will turn to God. When they have health issues, they say that, let me try to solve it myself. I exercise, I eat good food. I go and see the best doctors. But when things cannot happen, then they think about, maybe I should go to God. It's like a last resort, a just-in-case kind of mentality that I don't harm going to God because everything else doesn't work. So maybe I try, but I don't really believe that it will happen. But maybe I go to Him, it might be a small chance that it can work. So when they go to God, it's not a prayer of faith. And this reminds us of this father, of a, of a, his son was possessed with an unclean spirit. And look at what he tells Jesus. He says that Jesus asked him, when was your child like that, being tormented by the spirit? 
He says as a child. And what happened is that the spirit will cast him into the fire, into the waters to destroy him. But he tells Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice the kind of how he despised Jesus. Uh, if you can do anything, help us. He didn't really believe in Jesus. Just like sometimes our prayers, we don't really think that God can do for us. But we say that just in case, like the insurance policy, uh, I just buy in case something happens. I just pray to God in case he can help. But this man didn't really believe. But Jesus told him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believe. And then he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. And we need to ask God to help our unbelief. Because many times we pray, but we don't really believe. And so the world turns to God when they have problems. They ask Him, even though they don't really follow Him, they don't believe Him. And they only ask Him as a last resort, hoping that this will be the final thing, my last desperate move. Hopefully He can help me get out of trouble. But Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't only turn to Him when you need help. But we need to strengthen our faith. In fact, Peter tells us that we are to be ready always. Always. It means good times, bad times, we need to be ready. The next part of 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We need to be ready to build our faith so that we can give an answer to people who ask us our faith. We need to be ready so that we can build our faith and build our relationship with God so that when bad times comes, we know that God will be there for us. And the word ready comes from the Greek word hetoimos, which means to be ready prepared. It doesn't mean we start preparing when problems come. It means to be always readily prepared. That means when problems hit, I already have my defense built up. I'm not afraid of the problem because it's already ready, already, already prepared. And this is the same way, that is the same word that is used in Mark 14 verse 15, where Jesus tells his disciples to prepare the loss, the Passover for him. And he says that when you go to the house, the master of the house will show you a large room that is furnished and prepared. Prepared. The word ready means prepared. So Jesus sent his disciples there. He says, you don't go there, and then the person starts preparing. It's already prepared for you. It's ready for you. So in the same way, our faith must always be ready so that we can meet problems head on. We don't have to be afraid of them. We need to run away from them. And so we need to strengthen our faith. And strengthening our faith defends us from the fire. How so? It gives us the assurance of our hope when we suffer. What is faith? The Bible tells us, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Or the ASV says, the assurance of things hoped for. So when we have faith, faith actually opens our spiritual eyes. We can't see physically, but we have this assurance. I know that God is there for me. I know that He will deliver me. I know that there is a better place for me. So we need to build our faith so that when trouble comes, we know that, don't, don't worry, I have a father that will take care of me. And even if this thing doesn't uh, get resolved, even if I have to die for it, ultimately, I will be safe. I will have my heavenly reward. So we see that when we have faith, it protects us because we have the hope. We don't have to fear when we face problems. And faith also gives us the victory over the suffering. As John tells us in 1 John 5 verse 4, that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. When we have faith, we can go through whatever problems we face in life. And so Christians, we need to strengthen our faith. Good times, bad times, always have your faith so that when the, the, when the storms come, you know that your shelter is ready for you. And lastly, as Christians, how do we defend ourselves against the fire? We need to safeguard our conscience. We need to have a clear conscience, not just a clear conscience, but a good conscience. 
The world has a clear conscience, but the conscience may not be a right conscience. For instance, the Bible speaks of a seared conscience. People who follow doctrines of devils and seducing spirits, they speak lies and hypocrisy, and their conscience is seared with a hot iron. What does it mean to have a seared conscience? It means to have an insensitive conscience that has doubted the sense of right and wrong, truth and error. This means that the conscience has been hardened. Okay? It's like, for example, you walk, right? you know, sometimes you walk along steps, your legs begin to form those, uh, what you call it, the, 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 the very thick layer of skin. Sorry, forget what is the word. A very thick layer of skin. Okay? You don't really have feeling in the skin anymore. Right? Okay? You poke it, you pinch it, you don't feel pain. So some people's conscience are like that. Right? It's very hardened already. You don't feel the, the sense of right or wrong. They cannot feel. Okay? When wrong, wrong is being done, errors is being taught, they just let it go. So that is what it means to be have a seared conscience. And some, even worse, they have a default conscience. It's not that they cannot feel, but even though their conscience tells them it's strong, they ignore the conscience. They just do the wrong thing. And then they justify themselves to tell that it's the right thing to do. So Paul speaks of such a person in Titus 1.15. He says, Unto the pure, all things are pure. But to them that are undefiled and unbelieving, is nothing pure. But their mind and their conscience is default. And they say that they know God, they profess they know God, but in works, they deny Him. Being reprobate and doing things that are abominable. So these are the people whose conscience are being defiled. They have a corrupted conscience because they know right or wrong, but even when they do wrong, they'll justify and turn black into white. They'll say that it's the right thing to do, they find justification for it. And such will be a default conscience. So the Bible didn't tell us just to have a clear conscience, but to have a good conscience. And that is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 verse 16, to have a good conscience. And the word conscience is from the Greek word sunedasis, which means the soul as distinguishing between what is morally good or bad, prompting to do the former and to shun the latter, condemning one and com commending the other. So it means to know right or wrong, to be able to do the right thing, to be able to comment a good action and to condemn a wrong action. And this conscience, uh, we need to train it. We need to train this conscience. Okay, some people like to use the analogy of a conscience like a clock. Uh. If your clock is correctly tuned, you can always tell the correct time. So when our conscience is correctly trained, we can tell right or wrong. But if the clock is not tuned correctly, uh, you always tell the wrong time. And so when our conscience is not trained correctly by God's word, or when we follow society standards, then the conscience will be a wrong conscience. As Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us that it says, We show the work of the Lord written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or as else excusing one another. So notice it talks about the conscience, but this conscience is guided by the word of God in our hearts. We need to train our conscience aright. And when we have a right conscience, a good conscience, it defends us from the fire. It defends us from fiery trials. How so? Our conscience is something like an alarm. I don't think of it as an alarm. Okay. Alarm. Okay. You know something when uh, your car is alarmed, when something is wrong, the indicator light will blink and the alarm will sound, tell you something is wrong with that. So when the, the alarm rings, we can do a few things. Some people will be just ignore the alarm. Uh, the alarm comes, press off, press off, press off. Okay. They don't care, they ignore the alarm. That will be like those who have a default conscience. They know that something is wrong, but they just ignore the warning. Or maybe some people's conscience uh, is just like an alarm that is not sensitive. Okay. The radar, the sensors are not working. Uh. So you know sometimes your, your car has a, has, a, has a warning point where you reverse. 
something obstacle there. We will reverse too much, the car will tell, give you a warning, tell you you are about to hit something. What happens if your car, the warning is not working? Even though something is very near it, they never tell you. And then you knock into the thing. So some people's conscience are like that. It's not sensitive to right or wrong. So they always do hit a lot of wrong things, they do a lot of wrong things, but they do not realize that's what happens. And so we need to safeguard this conscience. Because this conscience is like an alarm that prevents our ship from being, our faith from being shipwrecked. You know, in a ship, a large ship, there are always a lot of kind of alarms. When the Titanic hit the iceberg, probably the alarm didn't work. It's like an alarm that is not sensitive. Or maybe it sounded, but people ignore it. But imagine if someone had paid attention to the alarm and said, oh, that's an alarm, that's an alarm. Something is going to happen, something bad is going to happen. They begin to take action. Then you'll prevent the Titanic from being shipwrecked. And think of our faith as like that ship. We are going to hit a rock. We know something is wrong. Do we run straight into it and ignore the alarm? Or do we turn away from it and do what is right? What is pleasing before God? And 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul tells Timothy to hold your faith and a good conscience. Notice this conscience is tied to faith because it's trained by the word of God. And he says, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. So some people have put away their conscience, they have off their alarm, they have jammed their alarm. And so, what happens to their faith? Their faith gets shipwrecked. And having a good conscience also defends us. Because not only does it help us to avoid doing the wrong things and then suffering for it, but it allows us to have confidence to go to God for help. Some Christians, they do not pray. Why is that so? Because they do not have a good conscience. They know that they do not have a pure life before God. They know that they have let God down. And so they are afraid to go to God in prayer because they know that such a prayer will not be answered. And they do not go to God in prayer. In fact, they ask, brethren, brethren, please pray for me. But they don't want to pray for themselves because they say that, I think God will not answer my prayer because I have not been right with Him. But if you have a right conscience, a good conscience before God, a conscience that is following God's word and know that we are right before Him, then we shall have no fear, no qualms in going to God in prayer. We will go to Him in prayer for every single thing that we need help in. That's why 1 John 3 verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence toward God. Indeed, someone who has the right conscience will be someone who wants to go to God in prayer because he knows that his prayer will be answered by God. And so in this morning's lesson, we have discussed how as Christians we can defend ourselves from the fire, what we need to do in order to face suffering in life and to be able to stand strong and victorious over the suffering. Firstly, we have to seek what is good. Do the good thing and not the evil. Because if you do what is right, less likely people will cause you to suffer, less likely people will find fault with us. Secondly, we have to suffer for righteousness' sake and not for sin. Don't suffer for sin, but suffer for righteousness' sake. And it defends us because eventually we will escape the greater fire of eternal hellfire. Thirdly, we have to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Always sanctify God and put Him first. Not just when it's convenient for us, not when it's only uh, when it doesn't cost us. We have to always put God first. Because only when we put God first, then we'll know how to respond to suffering. We'll be able to respond to suffering like our Lord Jesus did. And fourthly, we have to strengthen our faith. Strengthen the faith. Don't just prepare only in bad times, but even in good times. We need to strengthen our faith because faith is the spiritual eyes that will allow us to see beyond this life, to see the reward of heaven so that we can persevere on no matter what we go through in life. 
and last thing, to safeguard our conscience. The alarm that is built within us to help us to know right or wrong. But this alarm needs to be trained by the Word of God and not by societal standards. It was said that when the Emperor Valence threatened Eusebius with the confiscation of all his goods, torture, banishment, and even death, this was what the courageous Christian replied. He says, he, shall not, he needs not fear confiscation, who has nothing to lose, or banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and from sorrow. And notice the words highlighted in yellow. These are the things that tell us, that give us comfort and strength as we go through problems in life. Christians, we have nothing to lose and all to gain so long as we are stay faithful to God. For Christians, remember this, this place is not our home. Earth is not our home. Ultimately, heaven is our home that we look forward to, that we need to prepare ourselves. And remember, even death cannot stop us. Death cannot defeat us because death is the only way to set us free from sin and from sorrow. In Paul's words in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, he tells us that we have not yet resisted unto blood. We have not suffered bloodshed. We have not suffered the loss of life, unlike the early Christians. But what will we do if today Christians are being beaten, stoned, and dragged to court when there's a government that doesn't favor Christianity? What would we do? Will we give up our faith then? Or will we soldier on? I remember Brother Paul shared with us a Facebook posting about brethren in Ukraine. They are facing a war right now. But yet Christians are still assembling. They are still coming together to worship God on the first day of the week. Can you imagine the kind of faith they have, knowing that their lives are at stake, knowing that they are facing a lot of suffering, but yet they still put God first? What motivates them to do that? It's because they know that ultimately life on earth is short. It's temporary, but there's a greater reward that faces us. This life, even if we lose it, the more important thing is our life after this is being secure. Martin Luther King also once said, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. It's easy to be a Christian when times are good, or when times are tough, when we face suffering, when we face injustice. Do we still stand on the side of God? Do we still stand strong in our faith and not to give up? So brethren, do we stand firm or do we faint in the day of adversity? I hope that we are always prepared so that we can face problems when they come. As the wise man says in Proverbs 24 verse 10, that if you fail in the day of adversity, your strength is small. People who give up, their strength is small. And to the friends and visiting brethren that have joined us, and those of you who are online, we thank you for your time in being with us. It is always a delight and a pleasure to have all of, us, all of you with us this morning. But I'd like for you to consider a question. As you go through life, with so much difficulty, so much problems. Do you want to go through these challenges all by yourself, taking all the burdens of life by yourself? Or do you want to have God by your side to help you to overcome the problems that we face in life? As Paul says in Romans 8 verse 37, that in all things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. I want for you to know that you do not have to face problems and difficulties alone. By our strength, it is insufficient. But with God on our side, we can conquer this life, we can be victorious in this life, we can all be in heaven together to enjoy a place where there is no more pain, suffering and evil anymore. Thank you for your kind attention. 
I hope that you will continue to join us for other studies and also worship. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much.